Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at My name is Dwayne. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at the District Church, and um, I've got just the great pleasure of being able to open up God's Word this morning and just teach from His Word. Um, and as I teach from His Word, uh, this isn't necessarily something where it's like, I've mastered this and now I want to impart to you like my beautiful wisdom and knowledge on, on a specific topic. Um, but rather, this is one of those, hey, I'm a fellow soldier with you in the trenches on what it looks like to live out this truth that God has provided for us. Um, so this is something that's, that's constantly working within my life. This is something that's constantly working within how I think and how, how it kind of shapes me as a person and ultimately how it shapes me as a pastor when it comes to leading a church. Because um, this topic that we're going to be looking at today uh, really is kind of the, the big overall vision for every quote-unquote church that exists. Um, if a church does not have this as their ultimate vision and mission, then they're not a church. Um, and so what we're going to be looking at today is this idea of the Great Commission. This is, um, if you have a church background, um, if you've been raised in church or a part of church in any way, you've probably heard this taught at some point. And so um, for those of us who have literally been birthed into church and you've been a part of church your entire life and you've heard this um, text read and this text taught on, I do not want you to tune this out by any means. Um, just as much as the person who's never heard this text read and has all access and opportunity right now to just be filled with so many truths and beauties and the grace of what God is providing for them through this message, I want you to have those same lenses on as well. I want us to be able to look at this and say, man, what would it be like to taste this for the first time? To be able to receive this truth again and just kind of let it speak into our lives. Um, because even for me, I, I can probably guarantee, I didn't go back and count it, but I know I've taught on this passage over a hundred times in different sermons. And so um, even for me, as I was pre preparing it this week, um, there were multiple things that I saw kind of interwoven within it as I continue to just kind of break it apart that I was like wow like not only is this a beautiful truth but it's also a convicting truth of something that I'm not necessarily working out in my life as I'm kind of stewarding my life and stewarding my resources and stewarding my time and, and what that looks like and so Matthew 28 is where we're going to be so if you have a Bible go ahead and turn there or turn your Bible on and scroll to Matthew 28, whatever that looks like um, for you. If you do not have a Bible, there's hardback black ones around you um, that you can turn to in those as well. And if you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you. So you can take that with you as well whenever you leave from here. But Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be um, in the Great Commission, verses 16 through 20. But primarily, I'm going to be speaking on verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 
16 through 20. And as you're turning there, uh, this is the last sermon within our January series, uh, which is Epiphany. And Epiphany is just a fancy word, a liturgical word, historical word that means to make something known. Like I have an epiphany, like something is now made known. I, I, it's been revealed to me. I've kind of had that aha moment. And so Epiphany in church history is just this idea that follows the birth of Christ, follows Advent season, the coming of Christ as a baby born in a manger, Following that, it's now Jesus making himself known, revealing himself as Lord of all, as creator of all, as king and has all authority over all things. So that is Jesus making himself known. And so over the last several weeks, that's what we've been looking at. How has Jesus made himself known as the light of the world, coming into darkness, coming into sin, and being the light that is pushing an agenda from God to make all things new, to reconcile all things that are broken and fix ultimately the sin problem that we have, which is ultimately us. So how is he coming in and fixing us in order to reconcile us back into a relationship with him? So this is Jesus making himself known in our lives in such a way that it leads into us today. How has Jesus made himself known, revealed himself in our lives that it drives us to now make himself known in other people's lives. How is that actually working itself out in our day-to-day lives? So, Great Commission, verse 16, starting there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they worshipped him, some still doubted. Now I want to stop there just for a second, and you've heard me um, teach on this before if you've been at the district any time. I love the fact that some of the disciples are still doubting here um, because we still have people in the room right now who have been believers for 20 years, five years, two months. Hopefully, you, I mean, you might have got saved during the worship. Like, we don't even know. God's that sovereign. But they're still doubting amongst the 12 disciples who spent three years with Jesus in the flesh. I mean, they've seen him feed 5,000 people. They've seen him feed 4,000 people. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him transfigure on a mountaintop and come back down to where they couldn't even recognize his physical appearance anymore. They've seen some weird things go on in Jesus' life that would at least give him some credibility that there's some supernatural things going on or some supernatural power that he has. And yet they go up on this mountain... And they're waiting for him. Not only are they waiting for him, but this is post-resurrection. They've seen him on a cross, be crucified, die, and then buried in a tomb. And then now here he is walking right up to them. And some of them are still like, I don't know. Just don't know if this guy's legit or not. So like that gives me a lot of just rest in my own soul, in my own heart, when I'm still kind of wrestling with truths, when I'm still wrestling with, God, are you really going to do this? Are you really going to provide? Are you really going to lead me in this way? Are you really going to help me through whatever the sin issues are that I'm still struggling with and wrestling with? Are you really going to do this? Like, like that doubting is an invitation for us to be able to walk up to Jesus on the mountaintop. Jesus, I'm doubting in this moment. I'm doubting in this area. And Jesus, understanding that they're still having some doubts, responds to them in this way. 
Jesus came and said to them, and this is just for your, this is the last commandment. This is the last word that Jesus gives to them before he ascends back to heaven and from there has been ruling and reigning ever since. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus doesn't even necessarily address their doubting. He kind of indirectly addresses it by, okay, you're doubting, which means kind of you're, you have this fear, you have this anxiety of whether or not I am who I am, whether or not I'm truly in control, whether or not I can really take care of you, whether or not I can provide for you, whether or not everything that you've just been a partner of for three years is really going to come to fruition. And so he just kind of leaves them with, with an introduction into his commandment, which is all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. All authority is mine. It doesn't matter what Jesus says next. It has to come true. Because he's just said, all authority, what I say goes. Nobody can stand against that. Nobody can come between that. Nobody can thwart whatever it is that I plan or that I initiate, or that I start, or that I empower for someone else to do, whatever it is that's going to follow my statement is going to come true. Because all authority is mine. In heaven and on earth. There's no one in heaven who has greater authority or power than Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. All authority. I don't have a boss. I'm God. It's all mine. Everything is upheld through me. Creation came through Jesus. Sustaining of creation is still being upheld by Jesus. What I mean by that is grass remains grass because Jesus says so. Water remains water because Jesus said so. Our bodies remain what they are because Jesus says so. All authority is his everything works and functions and moves because jesus wills it to move so then he goes on to the commandments and what i want to break down for us today are six commands that are in this passage and two promises six commands and two promises the commands we're going to look at today are truly heavier than any one of us can bear the six commands that are in this passage are truly heavier than any one of us can, can bear. But the promises we're going to look at today are also more magnificent than any one of us can feel, can properly feel. And so my prayer for us as we jump into this is that we would both feel the weight of these commandments and even more feel the sustaining power of these promises from Jesus. Because again, if we only look at the commandments, man, we're going to walk away out of this room just overwhelmed. Probably even kind of a feeling of inadequacy. A feeling of, I, I really don't 
know how I'm going to fulfill these commandments that Jesus has just given me to go out and live. I don't think I can pull this off. If we understand the commandments truly, that is what we would feel. But if we also understand the promises fully, then it then consumes the fear and anxieties that we'll feel or that we'll have when it comes to the commandments. So I want to start with the six commandments first and then finish out with the two promises. The first commandment is go. Just simply go. That's what he says in this passage. And that's a difficult one because when we think about the idea of going, it also has the connotation of leaving. So go. In order to go, you have to leave something. There's very varying degrees of leaving. I still remember the day that we put the for sale sign in our house in Tennessee. That was not like a sigh of relief moment. Man, we can't wait to get out of here. That was a moment that had a lot of variables tied to this idea of going. We were in White House, Tennessee. That's my hometown. That's where I grew up. That's where all the nostalgia for me exists. That's where I could get out of tickets because I knew all the cops by first name. I knew if we go somewhere else, I'm not going to have that luxury anymore. My, my parents were five minutes down the road. My brother, my niece, and my nephews, and his wife, they're, they're five minutes down the road. All of my friends that I grew up with are all around me. The church home that I, was the first church that I was ever truly a part of, and then I became on staff of that church and worked for that church for seven years, I was still a part of that church. So this idea of putting a for sale sign out and following the call to go had a lot of weight to it. Not only that, but that for sale sign, that yard that it went in was the first home that Kelsey and I came home to as husband and wife. Now, it wasn't our dream home. It wasn't going to be the home that we spent the rest of our lives in. It was a 900 square foot, two bed, one bath. We, we technically didn't even use two bedrooms. There was one bedroom and then a walk-in closet for Kelsey. Not because she has a lot of stuff. It was just I took up the small closet that was in the smaller bedroom. But th- it, was, it was our first home. A little house on the prairie, we kind of called it. Like, it was this great little home. But there was, there was a tying of, of love there. Comfort there. Security there. And yet the call to go meant that we were going to be leaving potentially something that was very comfortable for us in order to go into something that was going to be very uncomfortable for us. Leaving a culture of familiarity to a culture that is completely different and diverse. And I'm not, even talk, I'm not talking Indianapolis, for those that don't know. We moved to Miami first. So this idea of go doesn't necessarily also mean that you'll have to do what we did and move across the country, or move six times in seven years, or whatever it's boiled down to at this point. (laughs) But in the Greek, it also means as you are going. There's this lifestyle. There's this idea that we are to be observant at all times as we are going, as we are leaving, as we leave the house, and we look out at the neighbor next to us, 
as we leave the house and we go into and we're, we're driving our cars and maybe we're seeing someone at a stoplight who is just yelling and having a, a, a complete argument in the car next to us. Hey, let's just pray for them. As we're going, let's just pray for them. As we're in the store, maybe instead of doing self-checkout, let's be relatable and let's actually, or relational, and let's go into and, and actually have a cashier that we can engage and have conversation with, build a relationship with. Instead of just seeing a, a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant as an object who's just serving us, let's engage them in conversation. How's your night going? How's your day? How long have you been in Indy? As you are going, we are to live out what's following this. So the first one is go. The second one is make disciples. Make disciples. In first century Jerusalem, this would be Jesus commanding his disciples to go and tell as every religion, Muslims, Buddhists, people following Confucius, Jesus denying Judaism, secularism, it would be him going into every religion, every people group that is within Jerusalem and telling them, stop following your religion and follow our religion. Stop trusting what you're trusting in and trust what we trust in. Stop observing what you're observing. Stop studying what you're studying. Stop doing what you're doing and come and observe and study and do what we are doing. It's literally go make disciples is to stop being a disciple of whatever it is that you are a disciple of and come and be disciples of Jesus Christ. Come and follow his example. Come and learn from him. Come and understand his teachings of grace that are not in any and every other religion. Come and understand what this is, that, that, that there's nothing that you have to do to earn this gift that Jesus provides for us but rather it's a free gift that he gives to sinners, that while we were at our worst, he moved towards us rather than demanding us to come to him through a process of works and deeds. Making disciples is literally telling everyone else, there's a way that you've been following, there's a better way that you should come and follow. There's the way of Christ. And that this is also to be done to all nations. That's the third one. Take the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. All nations. There are 16,000 different ethnic groups, if you count them from every country. 16,000 that we know of. 16,000 diverse cultures and ethnicities. How are we ever going to authentically put Christianity into every one of them? But yet, that's what he's commanded us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Contextualize the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make it known in every ethnic culture that exists in the world. I mean, I'm still learning my own culture. And I'm called to study and observe and invest in other cultures and ethnicities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. The fourth command is we then baptize them. This is a public affair. That's not private. 
you are not going to sneak anybody into the kingdom. Baptism is a public display of affection that I have turned my affection from this thing, whatever that is, and I am placing my affection and my worship and my life and my trust and my faith, I'm placing it all on Jesus Christ. I'm all in on Jesus Christ. I want my life to be for him. I want it to be all about him. I want it to be defined by him. I want my identity to be Jesus Christ. That is what baptism is, a public display, letting everyone know that I have died to myself and that I've been resurrected in this identity of Jesus. No longer do I live my own way, but I live the way of Jesus. No longer do I want to do my own path, but I want to do the path of Jesus. I want to be for him. I want to be all about him. My way wasn't working out, so I'm going to trust his way because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So that means letting Jesus and his word, the Bible, the gospel, the good news, inform, instruct, correct, rebuke, and rule our minds and our hearts. Baptism is not just this this random event that we do for new believers to publicly show everyone else that they are aligning with Jesus Christ. Baptism is just the first step of us publicly committing ourselves to saying that we want Jesus Christ to rule all of our life in such a way that I'm going to stop, put to death, my former way of thinking, my former way of living, my former way of whatever it is, fill in the blank, and I am going to now trust and commit myself to living out the way of Jesus. So I'm going to be buried, I'm going to put to death my old self, and I'm going to be raised into a new way of living that is going to be defined by Jesus Christ alone. So this means, regardless of what your worldview was, or your political stance, or your ideology of how you think people should love or shouldn't love, or who they can love or who they can't love. It's saying, I'm, I'm relieving, I'm getting rid of my way of thinking that, in all honesty, isn't your way of thinking. That's been discipled into you. We've all been raised in a culture around us whether that's in the home, or that's in the media, or that's in your school, or that's in your friends, or that's in the books that you read, or the, whatever it is. We are all formed and shaped to think the way that we think and to believe the way that we believe. And so what we're saying with Jesus is that he comes into that and he disrupts the way that we've been discipled, trained by our lives and the environment of our lives to be able to now say, Jesus, that worldview although might have some good things in there. I'm not saying that we're completely like just off. But what I am saying is that I do not want to live my life based on something that I might think was right. For Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man and it leads to destruction. It leads to death. There's ways in which we think are right. We feel are right. We're going to buckle down and we're going to make sure that this thing gets initiated or we're going to go this route or we're going to do this thing because it just feels right. And what Jesus is saying is, 
It may feel right to you. It may be a good idea or a good thought, but it could potentially lead to your destruction, your death, because it's not within the design that we've created. And when I say we, I'm talking about the Trinity, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's a design in which they want things to function and relate with one another on earth that leads to life and joy. Like God's not after begrudging submission from his people. He's not after creating a lifestyle for people that we think is boring. I used to have that kind of idea in church before I started going to church. I used to think, man, church is just a bunch of boring people getting together, doing a boring service. And then like, then don't get to have any type of fun outside of it. And I was so wrong. And if that's the way you feel about church, then maybe you need to invest in a little bit more to be able to actually see the true gift of fellowship, the true gift that is, is producing joy within us by the way in which we live out God's design for us. So this is baptizing them, baptizing them into a way of living that is public, that's calling people to put off the old self and live out this new self. The fifth one is what they are baptized into. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to make plain the Trinity to people. Which is like the hardest thing we could ever do. Make plain the Trinity. I remember having a conversation with my niece, um, Right uh, when she got saved and she wanted me to come back to Tennessee to baptize her. And I remember her having this question. She said, Jesus is God, right? And I said, yeah. Jesus is also the, the son of the father, right? Yes. The father's God, right? Yeah. How's that work out? <laughs> She's like seven years old at this point. And uh, she actually asked that question to my brother. And then my brother called me. I said, I'm going to let you... Take this one for a little bit. We'll just see what happens. Um, but anyways, we are to make plain the Trinity. We are to teach. We are to make disciples by immersing people. If you really want to understand the term of baptism, it's just baptismo in the Greek. It just means to immerse, to submerge people, to engulf people into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How do we immerse people into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, I can't physically do that for you. But what I can do is I can give you knowledge about who they are by imparting and teaching the Bible. By saying, in the Bible, this is who the Father is. This is how He thinks. This is how He operates. This is how He plans and He wills things to come into existence. This is how He operates when there's a people that he has chosen to provide for and they rebel against him this is what the old testament is looking like when the father is dealing with the israelites and how a lot of times we want to look at that and think how heavy-handed he was and how evil he was and and how um frustrating god was but yet the old testament is just constantly constantly him Stretching out his arm and extending grace and extending mercy to a stiff-necked, rebellious people. So we get to see the character of the Father and we impart that to people. 
We then get to see the Son as incarnate Jesus being the essence of who God is, being the visible representation of the invisible God coming to earth as a man, coming to ultimately take on our form so that because we did not live by God's way, we rebelled, we sinned. That's all sin is, is just not living God's way. Because we did that, Jesus comes and lives the way God wants us to live. So he lives perfectly without sin. Righteousness. He is just a righteous dude. Awesome. Never messes up. Never sins. Perfectly lives out the Father's plan for him. So Jesus is earning for us the ability to be able to live righteous. He's earning every single time he thought perfectly. He acted perfectly. He spoke perfectly. He served perfectly. He's earning for us righteousness. And then what he ultimately does at the end of his life is he then takes on all of our imperfections. All of our imperfections. Takes on all of our sin. Takes on every bad thought we had, every bad deed we did, every bad work we committed, whatever it is, he took it on himself. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin because he was perfect became sin, which is what we were, so that we might become his righteousness. So he who was perfect became our imperfection so that we who are imperfect could become his perfection. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. This is what Jesus Christ did, the Son of God. That's his role. Do the work of reconciliation. And then the Holy Spirit is the one that we interact with all the time, but we give the least credit to. Holy Spirit's the one coming into our lives and exacting for us all of the work of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and provides for us the righteousness and the forgiveness that Jesus earned for us. And then every single day, right now, in this moment, the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is working out a thousand things in your mind and your heart that you are unable to see right now. As we're teaching this message, as we're singing songs about the gospel, as we are praying together, as we, after this, go into that room and fellowship with one another, which is a fancy church word that in the Greek is koinonia, it's just an intercourse of relationships. And yes, I said intercourse of relationships. It's an intermingling of relationships in which we are shaped by one another because of the Christ who is in us is shaping each other to encourage one another and edify one another and love one another and serve one another to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So even when we go in there and eat a meal after this service, the Holy Spirit is still working out righteousness in us, creating us day in and day out to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit is doing that at all times. Teaching us how to pray. Guess what? He's even praying for you when you don't know how to pray or you pray incorrectly, as Romans 8 says. He's making groanings for us too deep for words. When you sit down and you want to communicate with God and you don't know what to say, and you throw up a prayer that is just wrong, 
The Holy Spirit's role is to shot block that prayer and to just lay up an alley-oop to God on your behalf in order for God to be able to come and bless you and to love you and to, to provide security for you. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. And we're so thankful that this is what we are baptized into. A trinity. And the sixth thing is to teach them to obey. It doesn't say teach them to know. Teach them to observe, to keep all that Jesus has commanded us. I can't do that. I can't teach you to obey. Like, I'm not going to show up at your house every day. I'm not going to like call you every single moment. Hey, you, uh, you praying? You studying? You reading? You, you evangelizing? Spiritual disciplines? Like, what, what's that? Are you fasting? Are you meditating? Are you memorizing? Like, what are you doing? All this? are you obeying Jesus? And and I literally just listed off the positive things to do. I'm not calling and saying, "Hey, are you not lusting right now?" Are you not lying right now? Are you not worshiping something other than Jesus so you're idolizing something? Are you not having envy towards the neighbor that just got a new vehicle or has a plowed driveway? (laughs) I can't teach you to obey, but yet that's what he's commanded us to do. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teach them to keep all that I've commanded you. So these commands that are given to us are very heavy and very burdensome. And that's why it's very important for us to look at the promises. As I already mentioned, the first promise is that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What that means is that we have the warrant and the power to fulfill Jesus' commission. We have the warrant, we have the right to be able to go and tell people to stop doing what they're doing and follow Jesus. All authority is his. It's like whenever someone thinks, like, how many of you watch, like, cop shows or CSI shows or any of those kinds of shows, and they're like, they... They know something's going on in the house, but they can't go in the house until they get the warrant. And then they have the right to now enter into the house and basically expose the bad guys for what they're doing. That's what's just happened. All authority is his. Therefore, go. That therefore is tied to the authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We have the warrant to go into the lives of people and tell them you're wrong Jesus is right let's follow him and the only reason why I can tell you that is because I was wrong and someone came to me and told me I was wrong and told me to trust Jesus and I did best decision I've ever made best decision I will ever make because it's an eternal decision We have the warrant and we have the power. So not only do we have the right to be able to go and tell people they're wrong, but we have the power in the gospel to be able to then tell them why they should now become right by trusting Jesus. Because in sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ provides them the power to now not only hear it, but respond to it in faith. 
oh my gosh, yeah, you're right. I, I am wrong. And the way I've been living is wrong. Even if it was good things that I was doing, the way I'm living is wrong. And I need Jesus. I need forgiveness of sins. I need this in my life. It provides the power for that. Jesus is the power. He has all authority. So we don't go in our own strength. We go on the power of Jesus. The second promise, and this is what we'll close with. The second promise is because Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Which is funny because he just leaves them. <laughs> right? Don't worry, guys. I'm going to be with you until the end of the age. <laughs> he floats away. <laughs> like, that's what Jesus just did. But that's why this idea of the Trinity is so important for us. Because we're not following a physical being that has to be in the room in order for us to be able to have power and authority and warrant. We're following God. We're following an omnipotence who has all power, an omniscience who is all-knowing, an omnibenevolent God who is all-giving, and an omnipresent one who is everywhere at all times in his fullness. Just think about that for a moment. God is everywhere at all times in his fullness. That's why I love the way that Jesus says it. I am with you always to the end of the age. There will never be a moment or a circumstance in which Jesus won't be with you. No one can promise you that except Jesus. I can't promise that to my wife. I was at work the other day and she heard a noise downstairs and she calls me and in that moment, I wish I could either teleport or be omnipresent. She was scared about going downstairs thinking someone broke into the house. And so in that moment, I'm like literally on the phone and I'm like, okay, do I like just jump in the car and just start heading that way or do I just wait and see like, you just don't know. Like you just kind of there's anxiety in that moment. But with Jesus, we never have to worry about that. He's with us always. And I love the fact that he says to the end of the age, because that also ties back to this commandment. How long should we do this? How long should we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Some people. This is a ridiculous thought. Some people look at the Apostle Paul as he's finishing out his ministry and he says, basically, I have fulfilled the ministry. That he's gone from Jerusalem to Asia and, to, and on all the way up to Rome and he's basically saying, I have fulfilled the ministry. People look at that and they say, well, he's done the Great Commission. So now we're just kind of going to be in these sub-Christian cultures until Jesus returns. And I'm like, okay, the person who has that thought was not in the place in which Paul fulfilled that ministry of his life. 
So it had to continue to go out in order for that person to even have a thought of Christianity. The Great Commission is not over. Is not done. We're in this room because people saw this commandment, observed it, followed it, believed it, and executed it. We're in this room because people took all nations seriously. I haven't fully understood all of your backgrounds. I don't think there's any Jewish people in here. We're all Gentiles. Which means all nations, the gospel had to get beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in order for it to ultimately get to us. But it's not done yet. It's not done. So we take these commandments and we begin to observe our lives. How am I going? How am I making disciples? Am I interacting with other ethnicities other than mine? Am I making plain the Trinity? By immersing people into it. By teaching them, this is who the Father is, this is who Jesus is, this is who the Holy Spirit is. And am I calling people to a life that's observing this? I want to be in your life. I want to walk alongside of you when it comes to living out this. This is not just a Sunday, come and hear a message. No, like we want this lived out. So the only way in which we can come alongside to live this out together is we got to be together. We got to have dinner. We're not saying like move in with us. We're just, we got we to have dinner together multiple times, not just once. We need to interact with one another. We need to talk to each other. We need to have connection with one another. We need to be studying together. We need to be discipling one another. In order for this commandment to be fulfilled. That's what we got to be doing. But we do it on the warrant and power that all authority is Christ. And on the security and stability of knowing that he's with us always. He's with us always. To the end of the age. Van, go ahead and come on up. Father, we thank you so much for this message, this word, this scripture that we are able to break down and just... Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at